um, about a week ago. Now, what am I going to do on Sunday? And I just had this sense that I wanted to do something a little bit different, perhaps not so much shouty, no points up on the, on the screen. And so I actually spent quite a bit of time reading through the book of Jude over and over again. And I've got a few study Bibles, which are, are always a big help to me when I'm um, preparing a discussion point. But I thought I would actually entitle what I have to share with you today, Hey Jude! And uh, those of you who know anything about the Beatles will know that the song Hey Jude is one of the most listened to songs in the whole of history, one of the most popular songs ever recorded. And it's interesting too that the last few verses of the book of Jude in the Bible are also perhaps the most repeated verses out of the Bible. Those last few verses are often called the doxology and um, um, the, the Greek word doxa from which we get the word doxology as we were discussing last week, it um, means glory. And so those last few verses are, are giving God glory and it's often sung in churches in some of the denominations they actually sing the doxology. So even today, there will be millions of people around the world who are singing or repeating the last few verses of the book of Jude. So that's why I thought I'd call it, Hey Jude, there you go. Um, there's always a reason, isn't there, for just about everything. Well, the book of Jude was written probably around 60, somewhere between 60 and 64 um, AD. That's about roughly 30 years or so after Jesus died on the cross and of course you know scholars argue about whether Jude was the brother of Jesus or whether he was a disciple or apostle or whatever I don't really get too carried away with that kind of thing because what really matters is that it was the Holy Spirit who inspired the words on the page and this is a message which is an important message for the church right down through the ages I think on the whole, scholars tend to have come to a bit of a consensus that um, Jude was a brother of Jesus. He didn't actually say that in his letter, but even at that time it was a bit dangerous to say you were related to Jesus because there was a lot of persecution of um, Christians going on. The, the book of Jude is very similar to 2 Peter chapter 2. So if you have a look at 2 Peter chapter 2, you'll see that they have quite a lot in common. And uh, scholars generally believe that that chapter in the second book of Peter was written after the book of Jude was written. So there's probably a little bit of borrowing going on there, not that that matters at all. The, the book itself, which as I mentioned earlier, is just one chapter long. It's split up into four parts. First is a, a standard greeting. So this, this is a pretty good example of the way in which letters were written back in those days. So it started with a greeting. And then uh, Jude doesn't mince his words. He gets right into it and um, nails the problem that he wants to focus on. And it's really a long condemnation of false teaching and false teachers in the church. But he just doesn't leave us there. He goes on then to exhort us, those of us who are staying true to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be strong and to 
hang in there and to stick with the faith that we were saved with in the first place. And then right at the end of the letter we have this so-called doxology which is drawing our attention back to be focused on Jesus Christ who is the author and the finisher of our faith. It's interesting I think to note that many of the people to whom this letter was addressed, we don't know exactly who the intended readers were, but they would have either been around when Jesus was actually on earth or they would just be like one relationship removed from someone who knew Jesus or who was a follower of of Jesus. And yet, so soon after Jesus died and was resurrected, we got the church in trouble. And and in fact, within 30 years, within, within one generation actually, the church was already drifting away from the truth of the gospel. And you know what? You can observe this over and over and over again. Whenever something is being handed on to the next generation, that's a danger point. Because that's when so often the vision and the teaching are dissipated. And you actually see it in family fortunes when, the say, the parents build up a business they make lots and lots of money. They pass on, it goes on to the next generation, fritter it away. And there's nothing left after that to carry on the legacy. So the sinfulness, the fallenness of human nature leads this to become a point of danger. And so it was in the early church. And so it remains the case today that the church is vulnerable to being moved away from the true Gospel. So I reckon it's a pretty good idea for us every now and then to sit down and talk a little bit about the book of uh, Jude. Now what I actually want to do is um, read through fairly substantial parts of it, not to start with, but I will, I will shortly. So we get a bit of an overall feel for what the book is all about. And you might actually not find it too easy to relate to whatever translation you're used to reading. But the reason I chose to use the New Living Translation is that I don't have to spend time explaining what the original Greek meant or anything like that because this translation does a pretty good job of using the words that were meant by the original um, Greek in the letter. So I just don't want to get sidetracked on trying you know, to, to explain what some of the words mean in uh, the other translations. So as is the case with a lot of the epistles, which are simply letters, a lot of the letters that we find in the New Testament, they start off with a greeting. They identify the author and then they address the people to whom the letter is written. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And James, of course, was the brother of Jesus. I'm writing to all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you, and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. And it's interesting that there are are a number of examples here in this letter where Jude speaks in terms of threes. So right here in this second paragraph, we've been called by the Father, 
who loves us and who keeps us. So we're called, we're loved and we're kept by God. And then in the next line, may God give you more and more his three things, mercy, peace and love. And lots of other translations uh, use the expression grace and peace, which is a, it's a, it's a kind of shalom, you know, uh, which is, that's the Hebrew word that's normally translated. Jewish, Jewish, uh, it uses shalom, yeah. And, uh, because that has that, that sense of peace and wholeness, you know, nothing missing, nothing broken. So that's a fairly standard introduction. Now what I want to do now, I'm going to actually read a pretty long section of this letter. So I hope you don't all uh, fall asleep and I hope I don't, don't get tongue-tied while I'm doing it. So he goes on to say, Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. But now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvellous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbouring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire, and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. In the same way, these people, who claim authority from their dreams, live immoral lives, defy authority, and scoff at supernatural beings. But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare to accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, The Lord rebuke you. This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. But these people scoff at things they do not understand. Like unthinking animals, they do whatever their instincts tell them, and so they bring about their own destruction. What sorrow awaits them? For they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money, and like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. When these people eat with you in your fellowship meals commemorating the Lord's love, they are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They are like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by the roots. They are like wild waves of the sea churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. They are like wandering stars doomed forever to blackest darkness. Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people. He said, listen, the Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
These people are grumblers and complainers, living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves and they flatter others to get what they want. But you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's Spirit in them. And so this is the the focus of the letter that Jude wrote. He's uh, pointing out to them that there are dangerous people in their midst, people who are actually preaching a gospel that is not, in fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, one of the first warnings here—sorry, here, <clears throat> one of the first warnings here—is that some ungodly people have wormed their way or infiltrated into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. Now those of you who have sort of hung around me for a while know that I'm really strong on the concept of grace. You know, we're saved by grace. Our salvation is by virtue of the grace of God only. There is nothing that we can do to earn salvation. We could never be good enough to deserve salvation. Salvation is something that God has provided to all of those who determine to become followers of Jesus Christ and is provided by his grace. If we were to be judged according to God's righteous standards of justice, all of us would be condemned to eternity in hell. And one of the reasons is that you see sin is simply not acknowledging that God is and that God is the creator of everything in the heavens and in the earth and that God is the one who created us and who gave us dominion over all that he placed in the earth and made us accountable for the way in which we steward it and promised to always be with us. That's fundamentally what sin is. And you see, when you don't know that God, then you don't have an anchor in your life and you simply drift like flotsam and jetsam in the ocean. And that's what we actually see when we look around in the world today. Highly educated philosophers telling us that it's okay to kill babies after they've been born if Now they're even saying for social or economic reasons you don't think you can live the life you want to live with that baby. They call it post-birth abortion. Of course God calls it murder. These are people who work today in our universities. And the two people I have in mind, they actually work in universities in Melbourne and they say this kind of thing is okay. Not not just because the baby might have some deformity or mental incapacity but because I think I can't have my two cars and my boat and my five bedroom house someday down the track. That having this baby is going to cause me economic stress. It's okay to kill the baby. See this is the kind of thing that happens when we drift away 
from the anchor. And we, we look at that and say that is sin, but actually the fundamental sin is that those people do not acknowledge one, that he exists, and two, that he's a creator, and three, that by grace we receive salvation. So grace is, a, is an absolutely wonderful thing. And of course it is the grace of God by which the worst of sins are forgiven. Uh, many of us probably haven't led a life that a lot of people would call sinful lives. Uh, most of us, I dare say, have not murdered anybody. We've not pilfered millions of dollars from our employees. You know, we've not robbed banks or any of those kinds of things. Grace covers that. But there's a really subtle shift from accepting the grace of God to using the grace of God as a cover for our sin. And you might not think that that's too much of an issue, but I know, for example, personally, of leaders of, of great ministries, people who, in fact, planted whole church movements who actually ended up falling into sexual sin. And uh, the process that goes on in their thinking is pretty common, actually. Uh, it, it's happened in, in many, many ministries over the years. They, they feel they have this direct channel to God, they hear from God, God gives them vision, and then they build around them people who become their followers, and they preach how important it is to hear from your pastor and to follow your pastor. And then they begin to believe that they can live a life a little bit different to the life that is prescribed for us in the Word of God. And they convince themselves that they have needs that God will meet. And so they engage in sexual sin. And I've heard a story of a minister in America who was um, sent to, he, he was invited actually into, into a church to, to, to preach in the church and he arrives at his hotel and two young ladies from the church actually come, they greet him and they say, we're here to meet all your needs. And he thought, well that must be to make sure I've got water and food, but no, it was actually to provide him with sexual favours. He never went back to that church again. So sometimes, you know, it manifests in something which is big and we go, isn't that disgusting? But often it's really very, very subtle. The grace of God never covers or never becomes an excuse for our sin. Look, you know, we do fall short of the glory of God all the time. You know, who knows, tomorrow I might lose my temper at work. The grace of God will cover that. But, it's not an intentional sin. If I engage intentionally intentionally in sin, believing that it's okay because I'll pop up to church the next week and you know sing along in the wonderful songs and take part in communion and the blood of Jesus will cleanse me, that actually is not living the life that the Lord wants us to live and you'll never be fulfilled that way. And in fact, I believe that ultimately you can lose your salvation if you continually choose to live a life which is a lifestyle of sin, believing that 
Sunday by Sunday, you can simply take communion or confess your sins and they will be forgiven. And I, I think this is a subtle thing in the church today. And sometimes, you know, we don't even really sense it creeping up um, on us. I think there, there is a sin that's crept into the church and it's called consumerism, where people's identity is not fully defined by the relationship with Jesus Christ as the book of John, the Gospel of John, declares it is. And we begin to frame our identity on the basis of our possessions, perhaps the job we hold, the, the, the newness and the expensiveness of the car that we drive. Indeed, the number of cars we have in our driveway or the, the size of our house. Now, God has absolutely no objection to us having nice things, of course. But when we ourselves desire these things because we feel that that's part of our identity, then we're actually engaging in sin. We're allowing the lusts of the carnal person, the person who lives without being empowered by the Holy Spirit, to, to guide our lives. So it can be a very, very subtle thing. And we can talk ourselves into believing that the grace of God makes it possible for us to have all this stuff and to acquire more and to acquire more. We take our focus of Jesus Christ and we suddenly become someone who's no different to someone in the world who depends upon possessions for their peace. And yet we know that the truth is the peace of God passes all human understanding and it's that peace that we need to strive for. So it's very, very subtle, this stuff that creeps into a church. And another, another sin is it's a kind of desire for freedom. And look, it's rife in the world. It's, it's the kind of freedom that says, I want to be free from any restrictions on my own behaviour that might arise because you could be affected by what I do. The philosophers call that negative freedom. That's the idea that I want to be free from any consideration of any of you. Alright? In other words, it makes me God. It makes me the centre of the world. And everyone else, their purpose is actually to make me feel good. And so in all of my relationships, I exploit people. And that kind of attitude is reinforced in the media, over and over and over again. So, you know, if all we do by way of engaging with the gospel is to come to church on Sunday, and we're not actually filling our minds and our hearts with the word of God during the week, either by reading his word or listening to good teachers, we're actually going to get this message from the media, and often from the people we rub shoulders with, over and over and over and over again. And that will out-compete the message that you hear on a Sunday. And you'll start thinking the way in which the world thinks. But see, the God kind of freedom, the freedom that truly sets us free, is the freedom to flourish, and that only happens in the context of community, which is why I'm so strong um, of the view, so strongly of the view, we need to get together as church community. It doesn't have to be here. We don't own any of you guys, but you've got to find the place where you fit in 
where you can actually exercise your relational um, gifting and, and fulfil your relational need. And in doing so, you will begin to experience the freedom to flourish, not the freedom from care, consideration or concern for other people, but the freedom to flourish in the context of the body of Christ surrounding you and supporting you. And also, by the way, in the context of the cloud of witnesses, which is all the people of faith who have gone before you, as we learn in Hebrews chapter 11. So be very, very sensitive when you listen to preaching. Be very, very sensitive when people come into a church situation and discern what their understanding of grace is. In fact, you know what? We live right, we live holy lives because of grace. And most of the time when you hear people talk about grace, I say, well, grace is the unmerited favour of God. And that's actually true, because it does mean that literally. But if you look very carefully at the meaning of the Greek word, it's an empowerment by God to live as he desires you to live. So it's more than simply the unmerited favour of God. It's actually an empowerment through the Holy Spirit in you to live your life as God intends. That is, to have the freedom to flourish as a human being in the context of community. Let me go on because we don't want to be here all day. My goodness me, I don't know whether you're having fun, but I am. And I'm looking at my watch and I thought I'd have all this done in 20 minutes, but I think I could go for another two hours. I won't though, I promise, because the chocolate biscuits will have melted by then. So Jude goes on to say, so I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. See, as we know, there are really only two of the Israelites who came out of slavery in Egypt who actually went into the Promised Land. That was Joshua and Caleb. Remember? None, none of those who were alive when they came out of Egypt actually went into the Promised Land because they lacked faith. Now, I don't think God is going to kill any of us because we haven't perfected faith. But this is a warning, you see. If we don't develop our faith, if we don't exercise our faith, we will become just like those Israelites who never actually entered into God's promised land. And we have a promised land. The promised land that we have today is actually that land of Shalom, peace in all its fullness, the wholeness, prosperity in the sense of prosperous good health, abundant, radiant, vibrant good health, and also enough financial prosperity to be able to be a blessing to, to others around us. And the, the prosperity that comes from the wisdom of God which is placed in us through the active life of the Holy Spirit in us. So we need to be wary that, you know, even as a church, that we don't lose faith, that we don't settle for anything less than our promised land. You know, we can become grumblers so easy, can't we? 
Oh, nothing ever works out for me. Look, look at those people over there. You know, everything seems to be going right for them. Nothing ever works out for me. That's just like the people of Israel who were grumbling. And of course you can grumble against your leaders. By the way, I don't mind if you grumble against me. That, that's okay. Um, as long as you tell me. <laughs> no, no, seriously, that's all good. Um, but, but we do need to be really, really careful that we don't settle for grumbling as a lifestyle because that will prevent us from entering into the promised land. And joy. Well, peace, joy, all of those things are part of uh, shalom and that's what God intends for us. You know, he go, Jude goes on to talk about the angels who did not stay with God. They are the ones who fell with, uh, with Satan and uh, they are what we, we learned last Wednesday night in Spirit Wars of the demons that have been released and can either actually indwell us if we don't have the Holy Spirit in us demons can indwell us or as Christians they can even oppress us and be trying to rob us to steal from us to destroy us even to to kill us it reminds us of the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah and it wasn't just sexual perversion there are all kinds of immorality including economic immorality in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. It just wasn't about sexual perversion. And uh, God, of course, destroyed those cities with fire. And that's a warning to the fact that God will one day judge the world. It's going to happen. And there'll be heaven and there'll be hell. There's only those two choices. So there cannot ultimately be any fence-sitters in the kingdom of God. Then he goes on to say, in the same way these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives, defy authority and scoff at supernatural beings. In other words, they live lives that are really no different to people out there in the world. And uh, this expression, who claim authority from their dreams, it's actually a derogatory, insulting expression. Most other translations use the word dreamers. The Jude calls them dreamers. Back in the day, to be called a dreamer, it was actually an insult. It was an insult that was levied at false teachers. Even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy. This is actually a reference to a book which is called The Assumption of Moses. It's not a book in the Bible, but there are fragments of that book which um, still exist. And uh, he also quoted from another book called The Book of Enoch a little bit later on. That also isn't part of the Bible. But I actually think that this adds to the authenticity of the Bible because people who actually wrote in the Bible were referring not only to the ancient manuscripts that are now included as part of what we call the 66 books of the Bible, but they were also referring to other historical documents. And as, as I said, there are some, some pieces of the assumption of Moses that are left today for scholars to actually study. goes on, these people scoff at things they do not understand. And you say, that is so, so the way of the world these days. You know, people don't really want to sit down and think things through anymore. So if something takes more than 25 seconds to work out, they tend to reject it. And yet, you know, we're being said, told here, listen, you know what, we actually need to bring our brains into our faith that you know, God actually wants all of us because 
he, he's given us a brain to actually use. So he, part, part of the creative nature in us, which arises simply because we are actually made in his image, it, it is this working stuff out in our brain. That's a highly creative activity. So let's not just dismiss the supernatural. Like last Wednesday night in that Spirit Wars video, I think all of us were given a lot to think about because I, I know that, that I hadn't actually thought of the operation of demons in quite the way that he did, you know, the role of uh, forgiveness and the role of truth under different circumstances. And, and so I thought about it. I didn't just say, too hard, reject. Like we're um, told to do in the book of Jude. Think about it, process it, discuss it. That's why we call these discussion points. We want people to talk about it and not simply either accept it uncritically or say, this is too hard, let's forget about it altogether. What sorrow awaits them for they follow in the footsteps of Cain who killed his brother. Like Balaam they deceive people for money and like Korah they perish in their rebellion. I think this actually points to three of the big... I've got four fingers up there. That's because they're so big. Three of the big sins that it so easily creep into the church. What was, what was Cain's big sin? He took offence, didn't he? He took offence because God actually preferred... Abel's sacrifice. So, and how often is offence literally the cause of murder, hey? How often is it the cause of angry words, bad thoughts and so on? Balaam, he was actually a pagan uh, prophet, but he, he saw an opportunity to make money out of prophesying to, to Israel. The sin of greed the sin of greed creeps into the church. And uh, do you know that the tax office is, is looking really carefully, this is the Australian tax office, is looking very, very carefully at churches now because they've formed the opinion that pastors run churches to make money for themselves. I'm, I'm not joking. I know about this. And they, they are now inspecting the records of churches, and I know of cases where they've done it, because they look at a church and they see the pastor, all the pastor's family, <laughs> all their cousins, all on the payroll, all not paying tax, and they think, aha, uh -huh, this is just a way for someone to make money. And do you know what? The way you hear some talk, I'm not surprised. So, Greed can infiltrate the church so easily, so easily. And that's something we need to watch for. What, what was the sin of Korah? The sin of Korah was resentment. Korah resented the profile that Moses had. You know, Moses was the guy whom God chose to lead the people out of Israel, but Korah resented that. And again, you know what? Paul talks about how important it is to learn to be content. That's in the book of Philippians. He says, I have learned to be content. And then he lists a long list of circumstances. Now, when someone tells you learn to be content, 
by no means should you interpret that as well stay in your place and don't don't advance, not at all. That's really about listen, don't waste emotional energy by resenting other people. Practice contentment and see where God will take you. See one of the wonderful things about the Christian religion is that it's aspirational in the sense that our our religion, Christianity, says you don't have to stay where you are. Most other religions say you do, and some say you are where you are because of something you did in a previous life. So if you're in a bad situation today, it's because you did something bad in a previous life. Whereas Christianity says, Jesus dealt with that. Jesus dealt with all the bad stuff, and he's raised you up. Right? He's raised you up from the miry clay and he set your foot upon a rock. And so every one of us has a, a right to aspire to something better. So we don't have to resent anybody. We don't have to resent anybody for their position or for their power or for their car or anything like that. Do you know why? Because every one of us can aspire and then we can work with God to rise to a higher level. Well, perhaps I should uh, move on now to talk a little bit about the the, the third part of of Jude. Because Jude continues to criticise these false teachers who have crept into the, the church. But then he goes on in the third part, which is not, not so long, to say this. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering, rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment, show mercy still to others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. So Jude realises that it's so easy for us to become affected by false teachers. And here's the antidote. So what, what can we do to make certain that we don't fall prey to what Jesus called in Matthew 7 verse 15, sheep in wolves' clothing? Well, first of all, we can build each other up in faith. So there's, there's a good reason for gathering together on a regular basis because when we're together, we can lift each other's faith. And that's one of the things that just happens simply through the worship. When, when we're together, raising our hands, that is building each other up. And then when we share in our community after the formalities of our time together, we have opportunities to lift one another up. Each one of us can pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Each one of us has the potential to be um, baptised in the Holy Spirit and to be able to speak in other tongues. And When we're speaking in other tongues, we don't necessarily have a clue what it is we're saying, but it's actually the Holy Spirit who's directing our praying. And we are actually praying the right stuff and we're using the right words and Jesus who's seated at the right hand of the Father is interceding on our behalf. So when the going gets really, really tough and you don't know what to pray, just open your mouth and let whatever is there 
come out as you pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes a prayer is answered. Well, all prayer, I believe, is answered instantly. But you know what? Sometimes it can take a while for it to manifest. And you go and have a look in the book of Daniel, for example, you'll see that there are two occasions there, or a number of occasions, where it's recorded that Daniel prayed. In one occasion, answer immediate. Another occasion, you know, the archangel Michael had to actually fight through a whole lot of spiritual stuff. And it took, I think, wasn't it 14 days for the manifestation. Of course, I know people who have prayed for many, many years before the manifestation of the answer to their prayer. So, await. Await in faith for the answer. Jesus will bring us eternal life. Show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. In other words, you know, when we see people who have been influenced by false teaching, we need to be careful to simply reject them. We need to do all that we can to maintain them within our community and actually to instruct them on the basis of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. You know, I, I believe and many Pentecostals believe that it is actually possible to lose salvation by knowing salvation but then deliberately rejecting it. And some people are in danger of doing that. And we're exhorted to do all we can to prevent that from happening. But note how important it is to be very, very cautious that we don't fall into the same sins that we're trying to rescue them from. There is a danger, you know, in the church becoming like the world to attract the world in. And uh, look, many, many churches now, are, and, and you've got to be, you've got to follow the, the Holy Spirit. But one of the one of the recent sort of trends in a lot of the larger churches is to play secular music over their PA systems, and they they do that because they say. Well, people will hear the music they're familiar with and that will attract them in. And when we get them in, then, we're, then we're, we can teach them the ways of God. But you see, at the same time, the ideas in those songs are being broadcast to Christians. And if you listen really, really careful to a lot of the lyrics of music that's not Christian music, it's actually inconsistent with the Word of God. So we have to be very, very careful. And I'm not going to say, you know, that every church who's doing this, they're wrong, they're sinning, they're not following the ways of God. They have to sort that out with God. And it will depend on exactly the purpose that God has set apart a specific church for. For me personally, I avoid that kind of music because generally speaking, it's not consistent with um, the Word of God, but I'm not going to prescribe to anybody how how you should operate. You've got to work that out with God and and with the Word as well. But remember this caution: when you're rescuing others, when you're showing them mercy, take care that the very sin that you're trying to rescue them from and bring them out of doesn't end up ensnaring you. And finally. Finally, finally, these last few words of the book of Jude that have probably 
been sung more and spoken more than any other verses in the whole of the Bible. This then takes our focus away from the condemnation of the false teachers and the exhortation to those of us in the church to maintain the true gospel of Jesus Christ, then he takes our focus away from that, away from the sinners, away from ourselves, and puts our focus right back on God. And that's a pretty good way for us to behave at the beginning and the end of every day. Now, all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory, majesty, power and authority are his before all time and in the present and in beyond all time. Amen. And isn't that a great way to finish our discussion point for today? Let's all join in with some food and drink and have some community time.